for the week of January 10th, 2021, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 524, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And safely in Birmingham, Alabama, I'm Michael Giltz. Is there a hurricane? No, there's a a coup. (laughs) But we will try. We will try. Everybody's exhausted by the week. Not that it's not important. But we'll try to give you a shelter, a place where we can talk about other stuff. You know, you don't come to this show to hear me rant. You hear me do. You want to hear me rant about streaming, not about politics. So we'll try to focus on that this week. Well, here, here's my question uh, for you, Michael. I mean, do you hear the people sing, singing a song of angry men? <laughs> it, it, it is the music of a people who will not be slaves again. That has been sung around the world at protests. I'm not sure what song was sung, though. We know that Gloria by Laura Branigan was played at the rally, that the Trump rally before people unfortunately stormed the Capitol and Laura Brennigan's estate was like that. We, that we did not approve that (laughs) (laughs) copyright claim, copyright claim. (laughs) Don't play that. And and, you know, uh, uh, just, just to give everybody a, that was my, I was quoting Les Miserables for those. So now fair use, we were, you know, we've identified it. It's funny how hard it is to stop people from using your songs. Uh, you know, like political campaigns in elections. It's weird that artists have so little control over their music that someone can use them seemingly as an endorsement, playing them at every rally. And ours are like, please don't do that. And yet they seem to be fairly powerless. They go to court. They put out cease and desist orders like John yeah. Fogarty did when Trump played, ironically, Fortunate Son at a rally. John Fogarty has a new song out called uh, Crying and the Weeping in the Promised Land. We'll put a link to it in our show notes. Check it out worth hearing. But after you, before you check that out, you should check out our show. What are we going to talk about this week? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are, you know, pretty much exhausted, to be perfectly honest. Uh, If a failed coup, is this nerve wracking? Imagine what a successful one would be like. Good Lord. Happily, entertainment news also happened. So we will try and stay focused on that. Award season is in full swing, so we'll be reporting on the latest films to get honored and why the Grammy Awards is ticking off actors, actually. Uh, Meanwhile, Warner Brothers is subtly pushing back against critics of its workplace environment, despite top talent like Gal Gadot and Jason Momoa weighing in with concerns. And we've got some worrisome insight about when moviegoing will return in full force in North America and Europe. On Inside Baseball, we take a look at Big changes at CNN and Fox News. Are they bracing for a downturn in ratings after election season's end or capitalizing on the new normal in appetite for their coverage? Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office or really more appropriately, he scrounges the world to find any inkling of somebody who went to a movie theater and paid money to go inside. Well, there's a lot of them in China and to a degree in Japan, but the ratings are a bit of a mess this week. We pulled information from the ratings, the the, the, the box office information is a bit of a mess this week. We've got two movies where the latest totals being reported on Wikipedia and elsewhere and and other sites suddenly are higher than they were last week. But those movies did not earn that money this week, as far as I can imagine. They haven't opened up in any new territory, so there's no reason they would have suddenly made this extra amount of money. But we're going to list them anyway, because it's new box office to us. It was made somewhere at some point, so it's the best we can do. But we're pretty confident that the number one movie around the world is China's A Little Red Flower, their version of The Fault in Our Stars, not officially, but that type of film, Young, Sick People in Love. It made $58 million this week. It's at $174 million worldwide. And like every other film on this list, it was open last week or the week before. There are no new movies on our list. It's the beginning of January. And number two is Shockwave 2, that Chinese thriller starring Andy Lau, which is doing very well. That made another $35 million. That's at $161 million and counting. And number three is Warm Hug. Uh, a broad Chinese comedy that made $32 million this week. It's at $112 million. Unlike its buddy, Bath Buddy, the Chinese comedy, which has dropped off the charts after just a couple weeks. It was dumb. It was broad. People saw it. They moved on. Here's the first of two movies with an asterisk by their box office numbers. Demon Slayer, the movie Mugen Train or Infinity Train, that Japanese film which has 
setting box office records. It's now at $363 million worldwide. That's $20 million more than we were aware of last week, but it didn't make $20 million this week because it was down to like six, five, four million million in a week in Japan, and it hasn't opened up in any new territory. So this is just a revised box office chart. That's where it's at now, $363 million. The same is true, sort of, for Dream of Eternity. This is the Chinese fantasy film, which apes a lot of the visuals of Marvel movies, especially Doctor Strange. It was receiving widespread criticism for it. And now we find out that the director has a long-term pattern of plagiarism. He wrote a lot of novels and stuff that people repeatedly complained were ripped off from other authors to the point where somebody went to court and he had to pull some of those novels down. He was told to apologize, but somehow he didn't have to. All of that somehow, suddenly, this week, has blown up in his face, and the movie has been yanked from Chinese theaters. Some fans say, hey, there are actors and cinematographers and a lot of people who worked on this movie. It's not fair to punish them because of this guy's actions from this movie a little bit and really just from his career. But suddenly, he's persona non grata. The movie was yanked from theaters. According to the one Chinese box office chart I have, it made just about a million dollars last week before it disappeared from the charts. People got returns for any tickets they were purchased in advance for the rest of the week. That's how much this movie has been become disappeared. Nonetheless, it's now at $75 million worldwide, and that's about $19 million more than we were aware of last week. So it's on our chart. It's, it's at the correct total, we believe, but we got an asterisk by it. That's what happens when we're the ones responsible for the worldwide box office. We're only two men. Yes, that's right. You should not be having us control what information about the worldwide box office gets through to anybody unless it's- you report it to us directly. In which case, our number is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. Please call us. Let us know how much money your your, uh, movie made this past week. Or email us or contact us in other ways. Yes, you can uh, actually email us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also follow us on Twitter where our handle is at showbizsandbox or like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. Funny thing. I, I, that was put, meant to be a joke, turned into a promotion. <laughs> Two animated films are up next. Soul, the Pixar film, made another $14 million worldwide. It's at just about $50 million. It's really only playing in China, you know, a few other territories, but that's the main territory, and they're loving it. The Crudes, a new age, is also playing around the world. That's at about $130 million worldwide. It made $13 million this week. Wonder Woman 1984, that's falling hard and fast. It looks like the Crudes will end up grossing more money than Wonder Woman 1984. Not such a crazy thing since the Crudes made a lot of money in its first release. So did Wonder Woman. But Wonder Woman's getting bad reviews. $12 million it made this week. It's at $130 million worldwide. Back to China, where another film, The Rescue, is still making money. Dante Lam's action flick made another $10 million. That's at $77 million and counting. Now, here's another movie that apparently was released last week in China. Not aware of it. It's called The Octonauts, Ring of Fire. Your kids are too old for this, uh, Sperling, but it's a children's British show. It's a, I'm sorry, it's a British TV series for kids, animated, vaguely sort of like Star Trek and or uh, Thunderbirds. Uh, it's little anthropomorphic animals that go on underseas adventures and deal with actual real-life creatures, not in the animated world, but like realistic creatures are not finding aliens and stuff like that, but they go out on adventures. It's a TV show. It's books. It's specials. Netflix has a couple of them on Netflix, but Ring of Fire is the latest. I've never heard of it. Apparently it played last week, but it's now at $6 million total. And finally, there's News of the World, the Tom Hanks film that made another $2 million. That's at $7 million and counting. Also not getting a lot of award seasons love. We'll get to that soon. Well, what do you want to get to next? I mean, box DC, DC. Oh, you want to talk about Walter Hamada, who is the head of DC Films. That's right. We've got Wonder Woman 1984. They're still high in the franchise, as they should be. It's rescuable, and we don't know how much money the movie would have made. Bad movies make a lot of money all the time. Look at, (laughs) what's it called? Uh, Jason Momoa's film? Aquaman, yeah. So Gal Gadot expressed concern about the workplace environment, was looking at DC and Warner Brothers' investigation of complaints about workplace environment. Actor Ray Fisher spoke up and said, no matter what happens, 
Uh, he feels like DC Films head Walter Hamada is complicit in a bad workplace environment and acted in bad faith and tried to throw other people under the bus to get Ray Fisher to sweep all this away. And he says, I am not working on any DC film while Hamada is still involved with the company. Well, well I guess he's fun. not working on any DC films because that's right. Hamada just kind of extended his contract there. So Right. So Warner Brothers said, yeah, no. You know, like, like Kevin so Feige. Is he being blamed for doing anything? Well, he was not technically involved. Well, what Ray Fisher was complaining was that he was complicit in the cover-up or an attempt to just sort of make it all go away and has not been a positive or transparent person. I don't know the full extent of what he is complaining, but it's not that Walter Hamada personally did bad things. I don't think he was even in charge when some of this happened. But in terms of looking into it and taking action, they're like, well, we looked into it when it's serious and we took care of it. <laughs> People are like, well, what did you do? And the only thing we know is that one specific complaint about how Hamada handled it, they have now re-upped him. So they're just saying, nothing to see here, keep going. So it's, it's ugly. We'll perhaps learn more. And if you know anything, reach out. We just gave you the info. Here's what I wanted to say about box office. We've got a really messed up vaccination rollout in North America. And what's uh, that, that's, that's to put it. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think there's a few other things that are messed up, but uh, that's just one of them. One of the, well, you yeah, know, throw yeah, that in the old mess bucket. But it's important for what we're talking about because it's also been screwed up around the world in a lot of countries. We know why it messed up in the U.S. There was no plan to roll out a vaccination. The federal government didn't make any plans. They didn't budget any money until the most recent stimulus bill a, a week ago. When was that passed? 10 days ago? Something like that. So states which are out of money because of the pandemic had no money to budget or plan for a rollout. There was no leadership from the federal government. And when everyone has to act on their own, it's very hard. Plus, healthcare systems are overwhelmed. There aren't enough people to do the vaccinations. They're already stretched to the limit. And the vaccinations themselves are very difficult to handle. It's not like handing someone a pill. Those are the reasons it's messed up in the US. But why was France and the UK and Germany and Denmark and other countries having problems? One big reason, according to some friends I have in the medical industry, is the CDC. They are the de facto world leader, and they've been doing a great job for decades, along with who and others, but they really have set the standard. We did a great job with Ebola, leading the world to keep that contained in Africa and help the people there, which was to our advantage, but it also helped the rest of the world. We, we've repeatedly set the standard for how to do vaccines, how to roll it out, what protocol to use, how to, just helping everybody coordinate. It's not like France sits around on their hands and waits to be told what to do. I'm not saying that, but the CDC has been the leader for decades, and they say its complete abdication of responsibility in the U.S. and worldwide has had a ripple effect and been one big factor in why other countries are having problems. Why do we care? It's Yeah, I was going to say, where are you going with this? It's completely bungled, right? It's, it's, I mean, states are like throwing vaccinations out. People are not getting the vaccinations they need. They're bungling it completely. What does that mean? It means it's going to take a lot longer to reach yes, her immunity, which means it's going to be a lot longer before movie theaters can open again, before Broadway can open again, before concerts can happen again. We were hoping and expecting the fall, right? That yeah, was well, our realistic expectation. At the rate they're going, it may be the fall of 2022. Well, <laughs> no, I can tell you that that we're this year we're not doing projections at uh, or predictions at Celluloid Junkie. But okay. uh, we were joking around during our last editorial meeting that, you know, one prediction that we know would come true is that we firmly believe that James Bond will move yet again. Absolutely. Well, though, the spring stuff will absolutely move. It could happen. People will hopefully get their act together. We do have a new administration. Hopefully everybody will rally, learn quickly on the job. But there is a real shortage of healthcare professionals just to give the jab. That's a real hard in problem to surmount. But the bungled early rollout of this is not promising. So our hopes that movie box office, maybe late summer, maybe theater in the fall, those are getting a little dimmer. Hopefully there will be better news in the months ahead, but it's not looking good right now. So our expectation is not great. Heck, award seasons are getting postponed, aren't they? Yet again, just like Bond, the Grammy Awards got moved, didn't they? Yeah, they did get moved. Um, I I'm a little confused as to so when did they move the Grammy Awards to? Well, they moved them to the same date as the SAG Awards. 
Oh, so so oh. so uh, so that was bad. So the did Grammy somebody award, not have an award season calendar? Did they not have an award season calendar? Right. I mean, the Grammy up. the Grammy Awards were supposed to happen at the end of this month, which meant I needed to get my best of the year list done because that's my personal goal to finish my best mu- music of the year list by the time the Grammy Awards roll around. This year, that was going to happen January 31st. Now they've moved it, for obvious reasons, to Sunday, March 14th. That's the exact same date of the SAG Awards. SAG-AFTRA is not happy. <laughs> They're like, hey, we have awards too, you know. But the more move, you know, I don't think March 14th, they're not going to, what are they going to be able to do differently March 14th that they couldn't do January 31st? So I don't know what they're expecting to happen by March 14th, but it's not like everyone's going to have a job and can be able to perform in a room. So it's all going to be pretty virtual anyway. So I'm not quite sure what they're waiting for. I don't mean they should have it January 31st. I'm just thinking, what's going to be different in March? Not much. Oh, I can tell you what they're hoping for. And this is a a big thing uh, here in Los Angeles in Southern Mm -hmm. California. The uh, pandemic is out of control. Coronavirus is out of control. And 10 weeks from now? Four out of every 10 people that you run into will have it. It's wow. really out of control. So really what they're doing is they're saying- I don't saying, think it's accurate to say that 40% of the population has COVID. You're talking about the, the testing rate. The testing rate. rate. Right. Yeah. That's not the same as four out of every 10 people you meet. People hey, man, who I'm go get tested. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry. To, I'm just trying yeah, to make sure yeah, we have yeah. the correct healthcare links. Anyway, yeah, your point yeah. is- That you know they just don't want people together. Right. I mean, quite honestly, they they have a stay at home order that has no teeth in it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. You look at the stay at home order, and then uh, you know the news about the stay at home order is quickly followed by the rush hour traffic report. So it's like, <laughs> what's and, the and, point? And we're, and we're not bitching about politics here. We're talking about how this is going to impact our business for 2021. We're all sick of it. We're like, oh, I'm tired of it. I'm sick of wearing my mask. It's like, you know what? It's worse than ever. <laughs> so you, know, you should be wearing your mask, two masks. Forget not wearing a mask. You should be wearing two. So I don't know what's going to be good, but the Grammy Awards, just like Bond, will probably have to move again. Yeah, they've also asked um, uh, any production. any Yeah, a lot of big shutdown happened again. A lot of yeah. shows paused. A lot, everybody paused their sitcoms, their dramas. Everybody said, yeah, no, this is not happening right now. So that's a big problem. But award season continues. The Oscars, for example, they so far have 240 docs submitted and counting, including great films like City Hall by the great Frederick Weissman and The Painter and the Thief, which our in-house film critic Aaron Rich liked a lot, and Time. Uh, What about me? I I brought that to you last year. Absolutely. It's a a classic. It's a a masterpiece. It's it's, okay. Yeah. Granted, there will probably be be uh, another film that that winds up winning the the Oscar for best documentary because but, uh, for social reasons, but uh, no, that's it. I'm yeah, just, you just like trying. the painter and the thief a lot, and time on Am- I think that's on Amazon. That's a terrific movie. So a lot of docs are being submitted, uh, and it's just a, a great era for documentary films. I don't think the National Society of Film Critics named a best doc. The early roundup of uh, of their results did not include a best nonfiction film. But what did they say? They said that Nomadland uh, is the best picture of 2020, along with uh, best actress, best adapted screenplay, and best cinema. You know what? Just give it Nomad. Look, we only saw one movie, okay? We saw the one movie. We decided to give it to that movie, Nomadland. Well, there was a reason why uh, all the festivals agreed that they all wanted to sort of present that show as that movie yeah, that, that by film. all of them. Yeah, yeah they yeah. all said, you know what? That, that this is what we want. This is this is a great movie, and we're all going to support this. So that was cool, and they clearly were back in a film that everybody has continued to really admire. I haven't seen it yet, and I look forward to it. But what else got on their list? I know that they they listed another films. A lot of films by women got a lot of awards. That's for sure. That's a big trend this year. Well, first cow, which is a documentary about Joe Biden's pet cow. Uh, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. come on, first cow, not, first lady, not come bad, on. Not bad, not bad. Oh, not bad. brother. Okay, so no, yeah, no, first, not bad. For, uh, never rarely, sometimes, always, which is a, a documentary about, a, not a documentary, a a theatrical film about abortion. Right, a, once they list the best film of the year, they then list 10 more films or nine more films that they also... Yeah, none of these know. are documentaries. No, 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 no. Uh, these are the list of the best fictional films. We know that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm, uh, Ra- I'm just saying what you're. I'm explaining what you're list. What you're listing. That uh, they have okay. a list of films after the best film of the year. They then list 
10 more films or whatever, and here they are. Okay. My, my fear is that people will think First Cow really is a documentary. Uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, the, the adaptation of August Wilson's play. Sound of Metal, which can be found on Amazon, I believe. Small Axe, also on Amazon. Borat Subsequent Film. Wow, that's on Amazon. You know what? If and, you're Amazon, and you want, bet you want Best Supporting Actress, too. Ah, uh, yes. Maria Bakalova. Uh, the Five Bloods, the Spike Lee movie, and Vitalina Varela. I, I hope I just pronounced that correctly. Vitalina Varela. And the early link that we had did not include this final information. The best nonfiction film is Time. I believe that's on Amazon. Oh. Uh, God help me if I'm wrong. Well, let's look that up. And the best foreign language film is Collective. Another, uh, in, that's also a documentary film, isn't it? That actually should win best documentary. Without yeah, that, a that, doubt. I get terrific. the time in the U.S. is probably a little bit more closer well, to home. They're great. Yeah, they're, they're all, I mean, getting a lot of critical acclaim, that's for sure. Collective is, that. I mean, that movie is amazing. It's one of those movies where as you're watching it, you're like, oh, do I really want to? And then by the end, you're like, that was amazing. Yeah, time is available on Amazon if you have Amazon Prime and can afford that. Collective, you can watch on rental or Spectrum On Demand. What, what movie is this? Uh, Collective is available on, on demand, on Spectrum, or via rental. You can rent it you know, via Amazon and Apple and the usual sources, whereas Time, the Amazon doc, is on Amazon Prime. Just letting okay. people know where they can watch these movies. That's you know, the big question. We've got streaming on the mind, which brings us to our list of the Nielsen Top 10 streaming shows for the week of mid-December, December 7th through December 13th. They're always about three to four weeks behind, and there's some interesting stuff going on this week. Now, every film on the, every show or property on the list, I should say, is on Netflix, except for one, which is The Mandalorian. But early December, the number one show that measured by Nielsen in streaming was The Office. Just as The Office gets ready to leave Netflix and join Peacock, to the point where Peacock advertises the fact that, hey, that show's been around for decades. You've all watched it a million times. It's coming to Peacock. That's how much of a draw they think it is. As it leaves Netflix, People watched 1.2 billion minutes of that show. They were taking their last dip into the office pool. Ah, I didn't even mean to do that. Um, so <laughs> th that was the most streamed property on streaming this week. At number two is The Mandalorian on Disney. And after that, a bunch of stuff on Netflix. Virgin River, The Crown, Manhunt, Deadly Games, which is another show like Shit's Creek that Netflix has picked up from another place. It played on smaller platforms and didn't get a lot of attention. Uh, but Netflix picked it up, promoted it, and now that's at number five. People watched 827 minutes of Manhunt Deadly Games this week. And then Supernatural, which just said it's goodbye on the CW. Grey's Anatomy, of course, in the midst of a new season. Criminal Minds. Big Mouth, the Netflix animated show. That's got 622 minutes and Shit's Creek. And one thing I wanted to point out was, uh, you know, in a few weeks from now, we'll catch up to what shows people are watching this week. One of them might well be Dickinson, which started its new season. And this week, as we're recording on uh, January 11th, they have dropped a new episode. Uh, well, they could pick it up. It's not that hard. <laughs> not the very I, heavy. The reason I mention that is because, like almost everybody else now, uh, Apple TV has gone to sort of a, okay, it's debut week. They'll drop two or three episodes, and then they release each episode one after the other, much like a network television show will do. The and then they, you know what they realized? What? That there are people out there. I don't know who they are. They will actually subscribe to a streaming service for a week, watch all the episodes that they, of, the, of the series, and then, lo and behold, they will cancel. Right. Well, I don't know how much churn there is from people, you know, dipping into Netflix once or twice a year. But the fact is you get more press, you get more attention, and it's a better experience, I think, by and large, for people to watch a show and not be able to watch all 10 or 12 episodes all at once. That's Netflix's thing. It works great for them. It's their signature move to drop an entire season at once. That's great. They're going to continue doing that. I have no problem with that. But I think for most people, it doesn't make sense. It's not a really good experience. Maybe for a miniseries or something, every show is different. But I think for most properties, for most streamers, it really does benefit them more to give them a big drop, get attention, but then keep getting attention week after week and building to a season finale. It lets people catch up. It lets friends join in. It lets people watch them together. 
you know, I think it's just a, it's what everybody has, you know, slowly shifted back to. And I think that's just going to be the way it is going forward. You know, I think that, uh, I, you know, first of all, my kids hate this. Okay. They so hate when start- they can't watch it all at once. Yeah. They're Correct. like, ah, what? I want everything now. I have friends like that, older friends, you know, people yeah. my age who are like, I, I want it all. I could get COVID at any point. Um, and so, I, and me, on the other hand, I just don't watch anything until not only the entire season is released, but until the entire series is released. I myself am watching The Wire. Oh, what a great show. Are you using captions? No, I'm not using captions. I'm actually not watching The Wire. It was just meant to be a joke, so now I don't know oh, what I'm That's I've not just- a joke. It's one of the best shows of all time. If you haven't watched it, it's a good thing to binge watch. Use the caption option. It Why helps. is that? Because some of the some of the characters are like there's one actress who I interviewed I forget her name now God forgive me but she really mumbles her lines you're like wait what what did she say and there's terminology <laughs> that you do not understand because it's either cop lingo or gangster lingo so you know you're not quite sure what they said the caption option is very helpful my kids will watch almost every Netflix show with captions on I have no idea why I mean I've asked them a couple times and they've given me. One uh, excuse after the other. Yeah. I'm like, wait, that wasn't the excuse you said last time. So, well, that's another, you know, long heaven forbid, trend. though. Heaven forbid I asked them to watch a foreign movie. Oh, no. No, no. Well, but I bet that will change as they get older. Their friends will watch some fun show and they'll watch it and they'll be used to seeing the captions. And I think that really will prepare them for that transition. So, I, I think, no, I think they're poised for that. They'll be ready. Don't you worry. But it is, a, it is a big deal that people are, you know, you say everybody wants to watch the shows all at once. I kind of do too, but there's an advantage for them to space it out. They get more press, more attention. They don't blow their, 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 their wad in one quick minute. They get weeks of coverage. So I think they're learning that it's, even if you would prefer it another way, you're not so annoyed that you stop watching or don't subscribe to the service. Well, if you think that's a big deal. It must be time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story is about Taylor Swift. Big deal or big no, just <laughs> big deal. I, yeah, uh, Taylor Swift has, she really, she's done it again. Her new album, Folklore, has been declared the most popular album of 2020 by Billboard magazine. And we're talking about actual sale, sales here, okay? Not a combination of sales and streaming and the fact that we're talking about it is, no. Folklore sold 1.2 million copies and is the only album of the year to sell more than 1 million copies. In fact, it sold almost twice as much as the latest album by Korean boy band BTS which clocked in at number two. Also on the list of bestsellers, The Weeknd, who you can see hosting, not hosting, but uh, performing during the Super Bowl. Harry Styles, Billie Eilish, and at number 10, the newest album by Swift. Swift also had the top-selling album of the year four other times, the most since Billboard started tracking actual sales in 1992. Adele is the runner-up, with her two albums, 21 and 25, being the best-selling albums for, get this, four years. Right, only one of em- 21 for two years, and 25 for another two years. Yeah, unbelievable. Now, only Eminem, Justin Timberlake, and the soundtrack The Greatest Showman managed to top the charts amidst the dominance of those two superstars. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big deal. It's still useful and important to look at album sales However, there should be another chart listing the most streamed, you know, albums of the year online, you know, most streamed songs, most streamed albums, because then you'd be seeing things like The Weeknd and Taylor Swift and Drake and who knows what else. I think streaming is where it's at. I don't think they should be converting streaming numbers into album sales. I'm glad they separate this. I want to know what people actually bought. But since most people are streaming most of the time, I also want to see a clear cut list of the most streamed artists albums and songs of the year that you know don't play games don't pretend that's equivalent to you know two million just show us those numbers by the way we're always checking emails and and notices online while we record the show two things one uh which network oh variety just announced uh, did a story saying you know what everybody's going to start delaying their blockbusters again. They're talking about Fast and Furious 9, the James Bond film, No Time to Die, Black Widow with Scarlett Johansson. Like, yeah, those are going to get pushed. (laughs) No surprise there. And then there's a story that I'm just glancing very quickly. It says Richard Powers film deal. I'm like, wait, what? 
<laughs> okay, this is the author, Richard Powers. He has an upcoming novel called Bewilderment, and film rights have been purchased. But I thought for a second they were talking about his last novel, The Overstory, a major, important, highly acclaimed novel, but it's about a tree. And I thought, they're making a movie out of The Overstory? That I did not expect. <laughs> but the end, well, I guess you get an end to, to star in it, I guess. <laughs> Yeah. Well, here's the thing uh, about um, these delays. Yeah. Most of the people making these decisions are in Los Angeles, which is right now being overrun by COVID. It is a it is a healthcare disaster that is being overshadowed by the fact that well, there was a coup attempt last week, uh, right. and we have a new president coming the following week, and you know there's a lot going on. Uh, there's a vaccine rolling out, but basically. Los Angeles and Southern California is a disaster in large part because you have a lot of people where that when you say stay at home, they say, yeah, I could stay at home and then I'd starve. Well, but surely they're making a decision based on the worldwide situation. If there was an earthquake in Los Angeles, the movie theaters wouldn't be opening up right away, but they would still play them in the rest of the country. So people making these decisions are looking at the entire world. And I'm sure Netflix makes those decisions when they decide what things to greenlight, don't they? Yeah, remember that Adam Sandler deal with Netflix? Do you remember that? Mm-hmm, I do. Yeah, well, it produced some of the worst reviews of his career for comedies like The Western Spoof, The Ridiculous Six, and the murder mystery movie with Jennifer Aniston called, cleverly enough, Murder Mystery, which, by the way, was one of their most popular films of that year. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, it was huge. My yeah. niece loved it. Well, she watched it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, apparently, that deal clearly worked. Netflix signed up Sandler for more movies, and Sandler readily agreed. Now actor Kevin Hart is making a, the same play. He signed a 10-figure deal with Netflix for four movies. You know that somewhere actor Will Ferrell is calling his agent and going, Hello, are you reading Variety? Where's my deal? Big deal or big whoop? Well, I think it's a big deal. You can see these deals are working. We don't get to get good ratings numbers, even though we report what Nielsen said. We don't really know. It's kind of a black box what's going on at HBO Max and Netflix, and we can't trust the information they provide because it's kind of BS. But when they sign someone or they renew a show for a new season, you know something's working. And Kevin Hart, of course, uh, is is an actor of color, a black man, and he's very popular in the U.S. Netflix, however, plays a worldwide play. And comedy doesn't travel well, and historically, wrongly, people keep arguing, oh, people around the world don't want to watch movies with black people in them. You know, nope, don't bother, don't even try. You know, the, the Tyler Perry movies, they never even tried to push them overseas. But Kevin Hart has big box office worldwide. You look at the Jumanji films, you look at the animated film Secret Life of Pets, but Jumanji and a bunch of other movies, they have play around the world. And so Central Intelligence, that made $90 million overseas. Uh, Grudge Match made $40 million overseas. There's lots of movies making good money, and Netflix probably said, you know what? Kevin Hart doesn't just work for the North American box office. He's going to work around the world. You know, they find Argentinian dramas work well in the U.S. They're going to find Kevin Hart is a big appeal for people all over the world. He's a big name. He's making big, dumb, broad comedies, just like Adam Sandler, and they're probably going to click for them, not just in North America. Uh, The publishing industry is looking back on 2020. Okay. And according to BookScan. Okay. Are you uh, doing Tom Snyder? I don't know who I'm doing at this point. Like, I I, I started off as, as Barack, and then I wound up in some of... <laughs> that was Barack Obama? <laughs> wow. Okay. I thought you were doing Tom Snyder. Okay. You know. No, wait. okay, yes. Rich Little, we're not. <laughs> well, according to BookScan, and the best-selling book of the year in North America was Barack Obama's memoir, A Promised Land. By a mile, it sold just under 2.6 million copies in hardcover, almost double the 1.3 million copies sold by the number two book, Stephanie Meyer's midquel to the Twilight series called Midnight Sun. You'll also find kids' books and numerous titles on racism in the biggest fiction breakthrough, Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens, which, by the way, it sold 1.1 million copies in print. Uh, that book, by the way, Where the Crawdads Sing, first came out in 2018 and is still going strong, as mm. is another 2018 work, Michelle Obama's memoir, Becoming. She sold 3.4 million copies in print her first year out, which, 
800,000 more than her husband, by the way. Uh, you know, somebody should have run for president. That's all I'm saying. Uh, two years later, she sold another 600,000. So Barack has bragging rights in bookstores, but not in his own home, apparently. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big deal uh, because just like with Taylor Swift and the album sales, we're looking at sales of print copies of books. We do not have the combined print and ebook and, and audio. Why might that be, Amazon? Well, well, it's the publishers as well. The publishers are free to publish them. It takes a couple weeks for pub- publishers weekly to gather all the data. So we'll eventually get a combined number of sales. That's what we really care about. The Becoming by, by Michelle Obama was hugely popular on audiobook. I know Barack Obama's book is very popular on audio too because it's 800 pages. That's why I would never read a physical copy of that book. So this is a glimpse at the charts. It's probably a good indication of what was selling really well. And that's great, but we want the total figures. You don't need to convert them the way you do with streaming. You don't need to pretend it's something it's not. With streaming, we just want streaming numbers. But here, we want to know print, ebook, and audiobook combined. How much did they sell? That's coming. I hope we'll get them in a few weeks. But the sad news is like where the crawdads sing. Yeah, no new fiction author broke through this year. There's no book There's no book on the list that isn't from prior years. So that's not good to see. You always want to see new offers break through. That hasn't happened in 2020. Tina Fey's musical Mean Girls will not reopen on Broadway. The hit musical recouped its money in early 2020, just in time for the pandemic to strike. However, with another nine months at best before shows can open up to full houses again, not just open, but open up to full houses, Mean Girls is calling it a day. It's a surprising decision since the show was still running strong after two years on the boards. With the sets loaded and waiting in the theater, some argued long-running shows would just be able to wait it out. Any shows that hadn't closed by last fall probably would not close. Well, Mean Girls is the exception that proves this rule. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it'll be a big deal if other shows follow in its wake. If they make the calculation, you know what? Another year of paying whatever we got to pay to wait and have all these people on hold who are waiting to get back to work. Uh, Clearly, Mean Girls just looked at the numbers and said, this doesn't make sense anymore. They're still going to be touring. They're still making a film version, a movie version. So it's a movie turned into a Broadway musical getting turned back into a movie. That's cool. Uh, But it's a little worrisome. Uh, Will other shows follow? I don't know. I haven't seen any buzz about that, but this show was going very strong. This was not ready to close at all. In fact, it recouped just in March, as we said, of 2020, just as the pandemic struck. So this show was still pulling in big numbers, and it could have easily run for another year, making it one of the longest running shows of all time. That will never happen, uh, but it had a great run. And it's a little scary to see. I'm not quite sure what the financial calculation was here and why they felt they couldn't hold on. But if it worked for Mean Girls, the same numbers are going to be staring the face in other shows, and we may be seeing them making the same decision. HBO Max already has revivals of Gossip Girl and the True Blood franchise in the works. And just like that, they announce a revival of Sex in the City. The gang is getting back for 10 more episodes so we can find out the answer to where are they now as the women face life in their 50s? Carrie Bradshaw, Charlotte York, Miranda Hobbs, and, well, okay, without Kim Cattrall as Samantha Jones. Uh, we They will be sh- sipping cocktails and sharing their stories again since Samantha was the most adventurous sexually. Perhaps they'll call it romance in the city? I don't know. Um, without Sam, I don't know. Big deal or big whoop? It's still a big deal. It's a big franchise. They had two feature films that got bad reviews that made a lot of money. Uh, people are ready for more. I'm sure people will watch. It's a shame that whatever, boy, on on people did not get along, clearly. <laughs> so that's really a shame that Kim Cattrall and they couldn't come to terms. Because, you know, there's four women in that show, and it's a shame to see one of them drop out. But I guess that's life, isn't it? You know what? You lose touch with friends. So maybe that's the, the angle they'll go with. And you'll see just how angry they are uh, at her if they, you know, start... They you kill know, her character off yeah, or exactly. something. Or, like, or if they like, just oh, become no. a nun. She's a nun now. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. You're, you're never coming back. Uh, yeah, none of the yeah. reunions. Okay. Yeah, well, maybe that, they'll get Roseanne. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That would really... That, yeah. That wouldn't work. No. Yeah. Um, now... That wraps up Big Deal or Big Whoop for this week and moves us along into Inside Baseball. Inside Baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and, more importantly, how they affect you. This week, we're actually talking about some of the headlines that are made by some of the people 
who tell you the headlines. And what <laughs> I'm talking about is I had no idea where I was going with that. Could you tell? Yes. So I was like, wait, yes. uh, wait. So the, wait, they're the ones with the headlines or wait, they're making the headlines, but they're keep all going, keep going. Okay. Um, in any case, we're talking about CNN and Fox News. A lot is happening over there in the world of 24-hour news channels. Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, and the like, they are seeing record ratings amidst an election year and nonstop turmoil from Black Lives Matters protests in the summer, right-wing attacks on state capitalists, uh, capitalists? Capitals in the fall, uh, including plots to kidnap and kill a Republican governor. That was kind of ridiculous. And now, of course, the attack on the federal government. It's bad for democracy, but as the head of CBS once said about Trump, it's good for ratings. <laughs> One might expect a downturn in 2021 since, you know, it's the year after an election, but networks aren't resting on those laurels. CNN. Okay. First of all, if you want to know what's wrong with our country and maybe politics right now, CNN had its biggest day ever, biggest viewership, daytime viewership, biggest audience ever in its 40-year history on January 6th during the storming of the Capitol. Well, 40-year history. Why, why is that a bad thing? If there was any sort of disaster or thing, people turned to television. People watched the landing on the moon when Kennedy was assassinated. This is True. nothing new. This is, yeah, it's, but it's, it's where we gather around what I'm saying here. is that, that I think that, you know, it's kind of hard for, you know, everybody said mid-Trump mid presidency, Hey, you know, you're going to have to come back down to earth after Trump leaves office. You know, the ratings will decline when life returns to normal. Well, life should be returning to normal now that he is kind of on his way out. And instead, well, we when disaster strikes, uh, happily, they were turning to a network that provides factual information. So I'm kind of glad CNN was the one to set record ratings. I believe they all did, of course. But one of the people who did well that day and did well during the elections was Jake Tapper. And he's gotten a big new role at the network after his success during the campaign and during the election night coverage, which extended for days, of course. He has an expanded portfolio and will be given more hours on the air. And anything happening in D.C., He's the man in charge. And well, what is the deal with Chris Cuomo and Don Lemon? I swear to those two do not sleep. They were up at midnight. They were back at four in the afternoon. I was like, my God, like you guys. I'd be grief. happy. I'd be happy to take their job. Okay. <laughs> Oh, well, okay, so he, he's getting an expanded role, and they're also, I guess, hiring Abby Phillip. Uh, well, not they hi have not hired, hiring. Yeah, they're, they're kind of making her an anchor of inside politics. Right, they're upping commentator Abby Phillip, who did great during the election. Uh, she shined during that coverage, I thought. She was thoughtful and composed, pretty much the opposite of the image of 24-hour news. They love to have six or eight people on screen all yelling at each other, and you turn sometimes to CNN, and you'd have Jake Tapper with uh, uh, Dana Bash. Is that her name? Dana Bash, yeah. yes. Yeah, and uh, Abby Phillips sitting there quietly, thoughtfully, you know, sharing insights and commentary about what was going on. You're like, what? This, where am I? What is this? Is this an alternate universe? And for but, our international listeners, um, it, it's worth they watch They watch CNN. You know. Yes, however, they watch the international version, which doesn't always get these particular anchors or these particular uh, they journalists. Did for, they did for the election coverage, though. But yes, they're, they're aware of Jake Tapper and probably Abby Phillip, who is a rising star and a person of color. So that's great to see. Fox News is making big moves as well, especially... At 7 p.m. They have changes all throughout their day, not for the five, not for Fox and Friends, for those who are familiar with the show, but a lot of other pieces on the on the puzzle were moved around or on the chessboard or whatever you want to say. They moved everybody. It was so complicated I could barely follow it. But one thing came out loud and clear. Big moves at 7 p.m. They are dumping their news-focused hour called The Story. And they're replacing it with Fox News Prime Time, which sounds like a news-focused hour, but it will be anchored by a rotating series of opinion hosts instead of a news person, which is rare on Fox. And, and also CNN has a lot of shows with a, hosts who are opinion people like Don Lemon and Chris Cuomo. But this news hour is now becoming another opinion hour, and it's starting at 7. Why is that interesting? Well, uh, because it is one hour before 8 p.m. You see, 8 p.m. is one hour before. No, no actually, it's interesting <laughs> because that is uh, what is referred to in the biz as the access hour, which that's is right. why, by the way, that's where Access Hollywood got its name because it yeah. would always air at 7 p.m. Access Hollywood being an entertainment news show. So what's interesting about that is you have two long running shows at that hour. One is Wheel of Fortune and the other is 
Alex Trebek and Jeopardy. What is Jeopardy? What is Jeopardy? Yeah, it's not going to be Alex Trebek anymore. (laughs) Those don't air from 7 to 8 p.m. in every market. For example, here in Birmingham, Alabama, Jeopardy airs in the afternoon from 3 to 4, a rerun and a new episode. And and Wheel of Fortune airs at, I think, 7.30 or maybe 7 o'clock. So it's not the same in every market, but most markets for decades now in North America, those two game shows have dominated the ratings in the 7 p.m. hour. But Primetime ratings are falling. The 24-hour news channels look better than ever. They're holding steady and growing, and they're doing better and better in the 7 p.m. hour. And because Alex Trebek has died and there's going to be rotating guest hosts and a new host at Jeopardy, that means opportunity. Anytime there's a change at Today or Good Morning America or 60 Minutes or any long-running show, there's the chance that people will sample other stuff. They will look around. You've got an opportunity to chip away at that lead. It's been decades with Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy dominating that hour. Now there's a change. There's a change on Jeopardy, and there's going to be changes at CNN and Fox News as they see themselves maybe competing better against the networks and competing better against Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy. So there's blood in the water, and they're pouncing. Yeah, I mean, look, I just turned to CNN.com and, you know, America's treacherous moment. You know, they're very, uh, they play these things up. I mean, that's what 20, I don't watch 24 hour news channels in general. I will for election or for some genuine breaking news like a hurricane or a disaster or, or the, uh, the failed coup attempt. But yeah, I don't watch, I don't watch any of this stuff regularly. Uh, I think if you want good news, read a newspaper. Please, dear God, subscribe. Don't go to a website 20 times a day. Actually, sit down and read either the website thoroughly within an, you know half an hour in the morning or night and you know or listen to you know something else, but do it once a day. You know, no need to leave any 24-hour news channel on all the time, but some are better than others and CNN is is pretty solid news coverage. Well, you know, we uh we talked about um, Alex Trebek dying. <laughs> yeah, Alex Trebek dying. Oh, that's a good segue. We there should you use go. that one. Let's I, use that. I handed it to you, and then you uh, ignored it. Yeah, no. Sorry. Uh, well, it is time for our obituary section. I was trying to, to use the, the documentary spinoff here because, uh, you know, Michael Apted, who, uh, you know, I have interviewed a couple times, and he was always oh, very cool. nice. Uh, and I always interviewed him for, like, a, a, a fiction film. And yet I would, and by the way, people at the round table, you know, if I was at a round table interviewing Mm -hmm. him, people would hate to be with me because I'd be like, all right, so yeah, it's great. Uh, World is not enough. Uh, Pierce Brosnan. Cool, man. Uh, Anyway, let's talk about this 42 up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, it changed his life. Director Michael Apta died at the age of 79. His life first changed as a teenager when he saw Ingmar Bergman's film, Wild Strawberries, one of the great entertaining films of all time. If you think Bergman is hard and dour, Watch Wild Strawberries. After a surreal little opening dream sequence, it's just delightful. And when he saw that movie, he immediately knew what he wanted to do with his life. Then he got his break directing episodes of the primetime soap Coronation Street when director Mike Newell went on vacation, who also went on to bigger and better things. He broke through with Coal Miner's Daughter, which won an Oscar for Sissy Spacek, and he kind of specialized in vehicles for women. He directed Sigourney Weaver in Gorillas in the Mist and Jodie Foster in Nell, both of whom got Oscar nominations. He also made a lot of docs like Bring on the Night with Sting and fiction films like Gorky Park and John Belushi's Continental Divide. He even made a Bond film, the pretty forgettable film, The World is Not Enough. But what will he be remembered for, Sperling? The 7-Up series. This is a series that uh, basically took the premise, and I can't remember who, who said the quote, show me a show man. Show me the child and I'll bring you the show you the man. Yeah, show me a boy at seven and I'll show you the man. Uh, and said, well, is that true? And basically followed... Went to a, a, a school in the United Kingdom, filmed all of these children at the age of seven. and well, then he, went did, he didn't film them, of course. He, was, he, was, he helped choose the children for the first film. Somebody else directed it. But then oh, he okay. directed all the other episodes. Yeah. Yeah. He then went back every seven years and basically went into the lives of those, those people. And I think they're what? What are, what are they up to now? Like 63 or something? They're like really... They're up to 63, which just aired in 2019. So the next one will be, you know, roughly seven years from now in 2026. So, yeah, wow. And, you know, people will do marathons when the new ones come out. They'll, like, do 7-Up, 14-Up, 21-Up, 
35 up, you know, they'll, they'll go. It, it's a great series. Uh, it's by far the most important thing he did. And it's funny that you say you would always bring it up because he never got tired of talking about it. It was oh God, no, no. He, no, he I mean, he, and when I would bring it up in any one of these interviews, like people would be like, oh, now we're never going to get him off this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, well, the, you know. the quote is by Aristotle. Give me a child until he is seven and I will show you the man. Uh, apparently that's from Aristotle. But the thing about the movies are he didn't know what they weren't planning to return to these kids all the time. And he always chided himself for only having like four girls and 10 boys. He did not have enough kids of color. He didn't have enough women. And so he really felt the series suffered from not having that balance better because there's a lot of things that happen to women that don't happen to men. And so he said, perhaps unconsciously, projects like uh, Coal Miner's Daughter and Gorillas in the Mist and Nell were movies where he was trying to make up for his failure to represent women properly in the Up series. He kind of made it up by finding great projects for women in his fiction films. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Well, also interesting is that uh, last week we had somebody on our list of obituaries, which, by the way, never ended. It was like a whole show filled with obituaries. But, That's right. Uh, we took them off. We said, no, this person it's is still, still alive. alive. Yes. And then we decided, no, actually, she did pass away, unfortunately. And we're talking about Tanya Roberts, the Bond girl, and she was also on that 70s show. She died at the age of 65. Right. There was a very unfortunate, premature announcement of her death. We're not quite sure why it happened or how, but it was an innocent mistake by her partner of 18 years, the man. Uh, whatever happened, it's not important. To, we don't need to place blame, but we were told by the publicist that she died. The whole world reported it. It turned out it wasn't true yet, but she was very, very ill at death's door, and now she has died. She was, of course, both a Bond girl and an angel. She was the last woman to be an angel on the TV show Charlie's Angels a big break that landed her on the cover of People. Then she played the recurring role of Midge on the sitcom That 70s Show. And once a Bond girl, always a Bond girl, she played that in A View to a Kill. She played the boringly named Stacey Sutton. That is not a Bond girl name, Stacey Sutton. No, and especially when, think about it, in Casino yeah, Royale, you have Vesper, where they actually have a martini named after you. Come on. There you go. And Grace Jones kind of overshadowed her in that movie. She played Mayday. That's the name for a woman in a Bond film. She also played Sheena, Queen of the Jungle. She was in Beastmaster. She did a spread for Playboy. That's a pretty full life. And her recurring part on uh, That 70s Show. So she had a good, rich career. Uh, whatever talent she has, she made the most of it. So God bless her. It's a, a sad little weird ending to her life. But the important news is that a Bond girl, an angel, and a Playboy centerfold has died. Uh, so has Dave Creek. He was Ooh, a character. This is awful. This is yeah, awful. This is, uh, he was the lead character designer from the very beginning on Bob's Burgers. And he died on a skydiving accident. He was an enthusiastic skydiver and, uh, you know, unfortunately died in, a, in an accident last weekend. Uh, he, also he, had a, he also had a cool hobby of building miniature tree houses for his bonsai trees, which he would document on Instagram. These look things, I want to move into one of these things. They're amazing. <laughs> they look super cool. I was trying to look up stuff about him. There's no listing for Dave Creek on Wikipedia, which is kind of telling because he's a lead character designer. I can barely describe what that means after the character was originally created. You know, we know so little sometimes about the crafts that people do. So I'd love to learn more about him. Clearly an overlooked talent in terms of what these people do on these shows week after week, like The Simpsons and Bob's Burgers and Family Guy and so on. An important part of that show. And, you know, doesn't even get mentioned. You know, he's on IMDb, but not important enough to be on Wikipedia or a lot of other places. Almost never interviewed. But his college roommate shared a link to this short that Dave Creek did when he was a freshman at Cal Arts. He did a short called Rooftops, which was done entirely in charcoal. It's very cool. And the guy's like, hey, I dare any college student to do better. You know, kind of a fun challenge to kids. Not saying you can't do this, but like, hey, look how great this was. He was just a freshman. So that's a great tribute to him. We've got a link to that in our show notes. A cool guy. And hey, if you know what a lead character designer does, explain it to me because I've tried to figure it out. I could, but instead I'd like to talk about Marsha Zazula. Do you know who she is? I had no, never heard of her, nor her record label. Yeah, well, she was a record store owner, actually. And that's right. She, there she was one day, listening to a demo from a little band called Metallica, along with her husband, by the way. And she went, you know what? So good, we should start a record company to promote this band. The rest That's, is history. 
Their name is Megaforce Records, which confuses me because Megaforce is one of the worst films of all time. One of the few movies I've ever walked out of a theater on. <laughs> I tried to actually. It ended so abruptly. I'm like, I can't handle it. I'm leaving. I stood up and the movie ended. That's how bad. <laughs> that is That is a true story starring Barry Boswick. Oh, my God. Every That was movie was as corrupt as the day is long. They said it cost like $20 million, which was a lot in the early 80s. It cost about $20. Anyway, that name confuses me, but they're called Megaforce Records. They signed Metallica. They were created to promote Metallica. They put out their first two albums and a lot of other stuff. The kind of music I'm really not into. I like most types of music, but hardcore heavy metal, not my thing. But I recognize the names of Anthrax and Ministry and Testament and Overkill and King's X. They did a lot of cool stuff. They had a record store called Route 18 in East Brunswick, New Jersey. That's where it all happened. They heard that lightning in a bottle demo that was a Metallica. Invited into their home, formed the record label. They also had a company called Crazed Management. Appropriately enough, when you're dealing with heavy metal acts, <laughs> I'm sure you know, they've got there, stories. If you want to know like how heavy metal is put together, I stumbled across a <laughs> Sultans of Swing cover, heavy metal oh. cover. This oh. is a Dire Straits song. It is not a heavy metal cover. It's like a bluesy. It, 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 to, you got to, the Sultans of Swing. Yeah. Yeah. And it was done by a, a guy who was doing a heavy metal version with a, somebody who isn't doing a heavy metal. And it's absolutely phenomenal. But also, as I was watching, I was like, you know what? Actually, this is a very good example of what heavy metal music yes. is. Well, that's that's interesting. I will check that out. Get a link and share it to us in our show notes because I would say the same thing for My Favorite Things by John Coltrane. That's the song from The Sound of Music. And John Coltrane has like a 12-minute version of My Favorite Things. But you hear that, you know the song so well, and you immediately understand what he's doing. You're like, oh, that's jazz. I literally yes. had that moment. I was like, oh, that's jazz. There's a melody. They're playing around with it, but they always circle back to the melody. You seem like you've gone way out of the world, but no, it comes back in again. And that is a great illustration of what jazz is. So I'm, I'm going to check that out. I also hope people check out the work by journalist Neil Sheehan. He died at the age of 84. He's the New York Times journalist who obtained the Pentagon Papers from whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg. And then he wrote a book separately from that called A Bright Shining Lie about the Vietnam War seen through the career of Lieutenant Colonel John Paul Van. It won the Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Award. It is a great, great work of nonfiction. Oh, my God, that's a great book. So it's really worth reading, trust me. And the thing is, because he died, we finally learned how he got the Pentagon Papers from Daniel Ellsberg. It's an interesting story. Uh, we've got a link in our show notes. He, he, Daniel Ellsberg was sort of freaked out, wasn't sure what he wanted to do. And Sheehan kind of took him from him, just like Ellsberg did from the Pentagon. He secretly photocopied the copy that Daniel Ellsberg let him look at, just like Ellsberg secretly photocopied it and took it out of the Pentagon. Sheehan did the same thing to him. Ultimately, he gave him the chance to give them officially, and Ellsberg kind of did. But that's kind of a cool story, but he didn't want that to get out until both of them were dead. A couple other people died. Best-selling author Eric Jerome Dickey wrote a lot of great novels with w black people at their core and proved they could be bestsellers. And actress Marion Ramsey, a, gr a good actress of color, best known for her work on the Police Academy films. But the last person we want to talk about is talent agent Mary Grady. She died at the age of 96. She had a trailblazing career repping child actors. I don't think she was the first but I couldn't find anybody before her. I'm sure there are examples, but she was certainly an early major person to specialize in child actors. How did she get her big break? By giving birth. She gave birth to her son, Don Grady. And when she's just a mom and she saw a casting call for Disney's Mickey Mouse Club, the original one, she said, you know what? My kid can do that. She got him to audition and he got the job. Four years later, when the show ended, he also was immediately cast as one of the kids on My Three Sons, one of the longest-running live-action sitcoms in history. After she got divorced, she pursued work as a town agent and then opened up her own shop, and she pretty much worked with every darn kid you can think of in the 70s and early 80s. She had Johnny Whitaker from A Family Affair, Aaron Moran, Joni on Happy Days, Melissa Sue Anderson on Little House on the Prairie, Brandy on Moesha, Todd Bridges on Different Strokes, the Olsen twins, and a lot more. And you know what? Nothing but good news about her. You know, you hear a lot of bad news about agents and the exploitation of child stars. There are no bad stories about Mary Grady. So that's cool to see.
Yeah, well, you know what's cool to see? That our it's show the end of last- it. it's over. <laughs> yeah. It, it's uh, you know, it didn't last an hour and a half. Oh, did it, we get under an hour, do you think? I'm pretty sure. Well, All maybe. Right. Close. If, we, if we finish quick. Okay, well, then let me tell you, you can subscribe to our show in iTunes, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher. I have to figure out what's going on with Google because their whole like podcasting is is the Play Store is going away. It's going to be something else. So I have to figure out what's going on there. Links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find those ways to subscribe to us. And please do rate and review us in any one of those podcast aggregators. It does help us out when you do. You know what? We're also on Spotify. So, you know, subscribe to us there. Uh, you know what? Along with those links, along with those ways to, to find us and 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 uh, subscribe to us, you can find ways to contact us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com, D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. That's our email address. Our phone number is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle. And we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. Again, all of that information is on showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is MGMT.com. Michael Gilt has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? Get vaccinated if you can.com. Uh, you know what? Uh, n- true. And uh, might be a little long for people to spell out. They might miss a word or two. So here's the thing. If you want to catch up on any of Michael's work, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his coverage of the entertainment industry is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. (laughs) 